We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. The act of browning butter is something that I enjoy doing. Like, I don't need a shortcut to, like, get there already. It's like, if you are really into, like, knitting or gardening or something, you're not about just, like, eating the tomato and having a lot of socks. Like, you like knitting. Like, it's about, but it's, like, about doing the thing. It's not about, like, the stuff you get at the end. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Here's an episode from our recent conversation with cookbook authors Natasha Pikowitz and Claire Saffitz, live at Rizzoli Bookstore in Manhattan. Natasha is a chef who runs the pop-up Neverending Taste and the author of More Than Cake. Claire is a recipe developer and author of the best-selling cookbooks Dessert Person and What's for Dessert. I hope you'll enjoy our talk and stay tuned for more live tapings this fall. Hi, thank you so much for coming to this live podcast event. Uh, We normally do these in a very small green screen room with nobody, so it's fun and a little nervous to be here with all of you. Thank you to Natasha and Claire for being here. It's super fun, and we were talking backstage about um, some of the strange common interests that you have, and I'm wondering (laughs) if maybe you want to start by regaling me with them. (laughs) Okay, I was telling Eliza, because when we were here a little bit early. Eliza was saying that we're going to sit on this side. And I was like, oh, that's perfect because Natasha and I are both lefties. So Eliza's to our left. And, and yet you're holding your microphone with your right hand. I, 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 need to, I need to motion with my left hand as I talk. And then we are cat lovers, cat people. We both lived in Montreal. We both love pastry. And we both imagined a, a future in academia for like a few minutes and then abandoned that. So I think it was just, I felt like when I first met Natasha, which was years and years ago when we did the BA podcast, I don't even know what year that was, I immediately felt there was like a kinship between us. Right. (laughs) I mean, I, well, actually, I think the first time we met was when we did a layer cake story for BA. I think the podcast was was before that. I don't remember. 2018. Yeah. That was my last story as food editor at BA. Wow. So also like sort of near and dear. Well, the first like immediate observation and impression I had of Claire was we she had to recipe test and put together these like very elaborate layer cake sets which were kind of like the antecedent to what the layer cake chapter is in my book now is like an approach that I've honed from that moment up until my book coming out this spring and there are a lot of moving pieces and I'm like coming from a restaurant background so I have like a very particular like hyper organized list making way that I like to do things and you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> and I came into the test kitchen and Claire was like, "Okay, like my little pastry corner is back here." And she kind of like ushered me into the back and on this like metal bench she had printed out and taped all of like the recipe sets and like instructions and all the lists with tape that she had cut perfectly with like clean edges so that the paper was like completely like flush and like smooth with the bench and I was like today's gonna be super smooth because Claire is running the show here 
I love that story, and I've learned a lot from making your recipes and assembling all those layer cakes, and that whole method, which maybe we'll talk about, or you can read Natasha's book, is something I definitely do now, and have done it for like big cake projects, so I love that that was my last story, because I like, went out with a bang, and I, <laughs> such, a, such a beautiful story, so that was our how we really kind of got to know each other. Yeah. The cats, I think I figured out the cats later. The cats Once later. I came over and then I just like saw them all and then, you know, just like creeping around and. That makes it sound like there are so many. <laughs> there were two, there were two, there's two. How many are now, still two? Two, yeah. I mean, twice as many as me, so I feel like you're so lucky. I wish there were 10 more. <laughs> and they're all like backstage right now, waiting to come out. They're in my bag. <laughs> well, the third part of your origin story that you two maybe don't know is that I was also working at Bon Appetit at the time. So I was like five floors below you on the Slack channel waiting to see when people would say that the tasting was done <laughs> so that I could come upstairs and eat the cakes when you were done with them. So I too was there. I, mean, <laughs> I think it's such a crazy thing to go from working in restaurants where you're in complete control over making the food and like serving and selling it to people to then like the process of writing a recipe and sort of like releasing that recipe out into the world and hoping that people will make it the way you thought it would be done. And back in 2018, I had like no experience with that at all, like writing recipes for home bakers. So I think like that moment when we were cutting into the cake and like all of the layers were so even and so thin and so perfect, I was like, wow, okay, this is amazing. I, w I wanted to be a good shepherd of Natasha's recipes, so thank you. And I guess while we're talking about your restaurant background and your kind of chess kitchen background, Claire, I'm curious when it came to, you know, maybe your first book even, um, how did you go about wanting to make baking recipes accessible for home cooks? And how do you think having a restaurant versus a test kitchen background um, affected that? I think for me, it was a pretty seamless transition from test kitchen to cookbook writing because I was used to creating recipes for a kind of public audience and not, you know, in a restaurant setting. So that part wasn't really challenging at all. I was accustomed to the development process and the testing process and the writing process. What was a little bit difficult was like the time management because I was used to a production schedule that was monthly where we would be, you know, developing recipes for every issue. And so it was just, I think I still struggle a little bit with time management. It's just hard when you're working on something with that long of a timeline to really kind of, I don't know, I'm just always working on something last minute with a deadline is just how it's always gonna be. But th that was a pretty easy transition. I think there was all the other parts of writing a cookbook that are a little bit more challenging, like you have to kind of be your own creative director in a sense and decide how you want the photos to look. And so there's other parts that were a lot less familiar, but I definitely had a really strong background coming from food media working at Bon Appetit. Definitely, I feel like making a magazine is the group project and then the cookbook is the group project where you do all of the work and like maybe some people help, but it's mostly yours. And Natasha, I mean, you were doing this Lair Cake story for BA, you'd contributed a little bit before, but as we talked a little bit on the podcast before, how did you transition from doing like fine dining restaurant pastry into making recipes for home cooks? I mean, as far as like the recipe writing process, that was a big challenge because I think when you're writing like an instructional or like a technical text, there's so, first of all, you have to like develop kind of a signature consistent language around like how you're talking to your reader. And that was just something I had never done before. And, you know, I think like when you're working in a professional kitchen, you know, I had teams of pastry cooks who already had kind of like a basic knowledge of what 
like certain words meant or techniques or what to look for for doneness. And so there's kind of like a lot that almost goes unsaid because the way that I would train my pastry cooks was really like one-on-one, the kind of opportunities you get where you're learning from somebody by doing it next to them. And I would encourage people to like take notes, take photos, take video, like ask me questions. And those are all things like a reader can't do. So I'm like trying to figure out how to distill like all of those one-on-one moments into just like a page with just one shot of like one chance, which I think is why I wanted to include moments. And you do this too, which is like, if things go sideways as they like inevitably do, you know, what are the things that you can do to kind of bring it back? Or how can you like understand when something kind of gets out of control? Like how can you understand what that moment was? And like, that's when I wanted to include, you know, like the sidebars and the pop out tips of like, you know, if you forgot your cake in the oven or whatever, like, don't throw it away, you know, because these are all things that I've done. So I wanted to provide that structure and comfort to the reader. But yeah, it was intense. Some of the recipes um, are from my time working in restaurants. So I realized that the, you can't just scale something down from like yielding 300 to yield, yielding 12. So that was a learning process to kind of figure out like restaurant, like recipes don't always scale up and down that cleanly too. Why, why can't you just do that? I mean, it's like you're talking about different amounts of things, you know, appliances work differently, you know, the way your oven responds to something at home versus a restaurant is going to be different. Um, Just, you know, creaming 12 pounds of butter isn't the same as creaming four ounces of butter, you know, because when writing a recipe, like I'm giving time cues, I'm like, 30 seconds, four minutes, like 20 minutes in the oven, like those things don't scale up and down either. So I think like, I couldn't just rewrite the recipe by dividing everything by 25 and like hoping it would come out the same. I had to like test everything again. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As someone that has a lot of like fear and anxiety around baking, I like can't even imagine why you wouldn't be able to do that. I just know inherently that I couldn't do it anyways. What? <laughs> I know I'm not. I know I like I do a magazine called Cake Zine, but I'm not the pastry chef in my working relationship or in any of my personal relationships. I just eat the food and talk about it. <laughs> Which is a great job to have, and that's why I appreciate people like you that can make recipes that work. And the other thing I think about a lot is, I think all kinds of recipe development, but especially dessert and pastry, is about making things that are just so delicious sounding that people feel inclined to take the extra time and the extra ingredients to make them. And I'm curious, when you think about developing a recipe, is it what you think sounds good? Is it something that you know that your readers are just really going to vibe with off of the name? Like, How do you kind of hit on those initial flavor profiles? Claire, do you want to start? You're next sure. to me. I mean, I think the inspiration for a recipe or flavor combination comes from a lot of different places. Sometimes it's a, you're, you're eating out and you taste something that you haven't had before. And that sort of is a moment of inspiration or you're at the farmer's market. I, For me, and I'm sure for Natasha and so many people, it comes from seasonality, from what's growing. Um, and so I think that the more you eat, the more you sort of understand just without even testing it, like that's going to be really good. So I have enough experience to know when I know something is going to be great. And it's not like I'm reinventing the wheel. It's not that hard to combine stone fruit and cream or cinnamon and apples. You know, these are tried and true combinations. And I feel like in what I do, I'm never really going so far outside the box that it's going to sound like just a little bit too 
distant for someone you know, who is just reading the recipe at home. So I'm pretty confident that something's going to work. Sometimes it's the other parts of the recipe that I'm not as confident about. And in what's for dessert, I really did try to get away from more of kind of my core comfort zone when it came to desserts. So making types of desserts that I was less familiar with, like lots of custards, things that weren't as kind of flour-based but more egg-based. Um, and there were so many recipe ideas that the flavor wasn't the problem. It was like the sort of concept itself didn't work. So I tested so much more actually for what's for dessert than I did for dessert person. Because dessert person was recipes I've been thinking about for years upon years and stuff that was like totally my wheelhouse and my perspective on pastry and desserts. And what's for dessert was a little bit sort of pushing myself more. So there were things that looked just like, I never got proof of concept after five tests. So I was like, well, that's getting cut. And you know, it's just never going to be a thing. So... You know, flavor combinations, that inspiration, I'm usually pretty, feel pretty good about that. It's sometimes just the execution, and sometimes it has to be something else. I have desserts in what's for dessert that started out as something else, and the flavor profile stayed the same, but it just needed to morph into a different kind of dish. Like there's the, um, there's an oat and walnut pie that was originally a cookie, and it's so much better as a pie. So I think it's really about kind of making sure that all of the sort of parts of the recipe plus the flavor all kind of work together seamlessly. Yeah, I love that evolution. That's very like cute to me for some reason. <laughs> like a cookie can grow up to be a pie. <laughs> totally. And Natasha, I feel like you do um, kind of freakier flavors, but in a way that I love, like I say that as the highest compliment. I mean, I think uh, again, like coming from working in fine dining restaurants where it was like the sky was the limit for purchasing ingredients. You know, we were getting like insane olive oils from Spain and we were getting like awesome fruit from Japan. And it was like, you know, the goal of working in the restaurant was just to blow the diner's mind every time with something that you could do for a day or a month or a week or whatever. But when I was writing the book, I really wanted to be sensitive to the fact that that's not the reality for like almost everybody. And that things that I could get and source in New York City wouldn't maybe wouldn't be available to people in other parts of the country or the world or whatever. So in a way, it was almost a challenge to like not rely too much on something that like feels flashy or chefy or like seemed cool as like an ingredient because I think those things can kind of be like alienating to people too and will turn them off from wanting to like dive into a book. Um, so it was more like things that spoke to me were things like you know, a can of sweet, sweetened red beans that you could get at like an Asian grocery store or something. Or, you know, we shot a video for you that was from my book of the pineapple tart with the candied chiso leaves. And for me, that like, that feels like a very like signature way of how I kind of examine like a dessert repertoire where, you know, maybe we've all made a galette with like apples or stone fruit, but I wanted to show that like, a pineapple you could buy from the grocery store, you know, if you slice it really thinly and like roast it at high heat, it's actually perfect for that kind of treatment of, you know, flaky pie dessert. And that maybe shiso or like a perilla leaf could be an ingredient that maybe somebody wouldn't have thought of in a sweet context and, you know, kind of trying to push people to think about using ingredients in like unexpected ways. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that on one hand, being in New York and having access to so many different kinds of ingredients is, you know, maybe something that everyone else has. But I feel like developing pastry in New York has an advantage in that you have a small kitchen and you maybe don't have a dishwasher and like you are being more practical when it comes to the appliances. Does that resonate for you? 
I mean, I definitely don't have a dishwasher. Yeah, do you have a dishwasher yet? This is really my question to you. You still don't? I don't have a stand mixer. Like, I don't know how, you know, like that, I feel like that blows people's minds, but like. Yeah, there was just like a rumble through the crowd when you said <laughs> like that. Like a ripple. <laughs> I buy, my apartment is like so little and my kitchen is even more little. And so I, I didn't want to write a book where I was like, you need a Vitamix and like a Roboku and you must have a KitchenAid stand mixer. Like all of these incredible tools that cost thousands of dollars that are amazing. But I was like, I literally do not have space for those things in, in my home. And I want it to be like, like I don't have a lot of cake pans of different sizes. So my whole layer cake method is informed by you have a half sheet tray and maybe you have like a ramen bowl or, you know, a like pot in your, you know, oven, like you can make a cake in that. So I just, you know, I don't think you have to buy all this crap to like make something specific. Yeah, I think on your Instagram you posted recently, um, you made a layer cake in a little like eight inch stove pot, right? Yeah, for my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. Um, Congratulations. I've, yeah, I flew home for that and then they, I realized that they had never had a wedding cake at their wedding. Um, and so I made them a tiered wedding cake because I wanted to go super traditional. But my parents don't have any of that baking stuff. So, yeah, I made it in, like, a little sauce pot. And it was so cute. What was the, the flavor profile? Um, I did, like, a black sesame genoise sponge, which my mom asked for. And I did, like, a coconut milk soak. I made a raspberry jam. I made, like, a mascarpone mousse and a vanilla bean buttercream. So actually very, like, straightforward for me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I didn't want, like, all their friends, because it was a big party for all their friends, and I, I didn't want there to be, like, you know, I wanted it to be straightforward and, like, a crowd pleaser. Yeah, it sounds like a crowd pleaser. I'm curious, like, one of the interesting things about being a cookbook author on Instagram in this day and age is that you can see what people are making, or at least what they want the world to know that they're making, because they're <laughs> tagging you and posting about it. Uh, and I'm curious, like, what are the dishes that you've been seeing people making the most, clear maybe from your most recent cookbook, What's for Dessert, and are they the ones that you thought they were going to be? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from Dessert Person and the response from that book about what people are making. And it wasn't a huge surprise. It tends to be the kind of simpler, more straightforward things, and also the things that are a little bit more familiar. So stuff like a chocolate chip cookie or, you know, a shortbread or that kind of thing. So I've definitely seen, and I have my YouTube channel where I'm demoing a lot of the recipes. So that, I think, video is just an inherently better format for teaching. So I think a lot of the stuff that I'm showing on YouTube, which I'm picking based on sort of accessibility and ease of making, um, those things tend to be really popular. So stuff like the cookies in the book, for sure. Um, there's an all-in shortbread that is actually my favorite cookie in the book. That's really, really straightforward. Um, that's been really popular. The tiramisu icebox cake, which was sort of, that was one that I pegged as like being a sort of a a potential fan favorite from the book has been really popular. Yeah, I um, think anytime you're combining two desserts in one name, like cannoli cookie, <laughs> like anything like that, you know it's going to hit. Right, and it is a really straightforward, um, it's like no-bake recipe. So those those words like no-bake, those tend to really sort of draw people in, stuff like that. Um, it's made in a loaf pan, which like most people have. If you have like one piece of cookware, I feel like, or bakeware, I feel like it's a loaf pan. Um, so yeah, I think I was able to predict a little bit better in what's for dessert than for dessert person, just based on kind of like seeing reception and sort of seeing what kinds of recipes um, really resonate for people. Are people making all of the like old school custards and egg-based desserts in your new book? They are. People, things like the creme brulee, I know you have a creme brulee in your book too. Um, that's been popular. 
Um, I'm trying to think some of the, a lot of the puddings, I think pudding is like such a, it sounds like such a comforting thing. And I think people have really positive associations. So those have also been really popular. Do you feel like people own kitchen torches at home or are they, with no, the creme brulee? Like I, I'm truly I mean, I curious s- about this. I think some people really do. I, I do. I think, I mean, I know stand mixer, I, yeah. but yes, a blowtorch. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha knows that I have a blowtorch because we used it on the um, pineapple galette and then I lit the um, parchment on fire with it. So that obviously the made its way okay. into the video. Yeah. Right. An extra like toasty flavor. <laughs> exactly. I, I tend to light things on fire occasionally, <laughs> not, not intentionally. Unless it's a flambe, which I have a couple of flambe desserts, which I talk about flambe safety and what's your dessert. But yeah, I think it, the popular desserts tend to be the ones that are just feel accessible. And similar to what Natasha was saying, I had kind of requirements that I put on myself for the second book, which was no stand mixer, there's only one or two recipes, I think, that require a food processor. So it's very um, like low-tech in terms of re- required equipment. So that was really important because I wanted it to be a book where even if you don't have an oven at home, you could still make like stovetop desserts. So there's a whole stovetop dessert chapter. So accessibility was really top of mind for me in developing the recipes. Definitely. Natasha, are people tagging you in layer cakes all the time? Yeah, I mean, I like I feel like I've been completely blown away and surprised by the fact that a lot of people, it seems like, that are sharing with me are diving into the book and the first thing they're making is a layer cake. Like I was, the first chapter of my book is the cookie chapter because I wanted the book to start like kind of gentle and with things that you could mix and bake off that day and eat. Um, And the more projects are kind of like halfway into the book, you know, kind of work you up to that moment. But I've actually been like seeing that the opposite is sort of true, that people are just like, I want to dive into this cake right now. And I think that speaks to people's like, excitement around projects too and also this idea and this is something that I feel like Claire and I talked talked about a lot which is that for me like baking is not about a means to the end and it's not about like racing through something or getting a shortcut for something to get to that final product where you're like eating it and maybe for some people it is and that's amazing I'm just like speaking to my relationship with baking and with pastry where you know, the act of browning butter is something that I enjoy doing. Like, I don't need a shortcut to, like, get there already. Like, I like seeing the bubbles, and I like smelling the aromas, and I enjoy all of those steps. It's like, if you are really into, like, you know, like, knitting or gardening or something, you're not about just, like, eating the tomato and having a lot of socks. Like, you like knitting. Like, it's about... But it's, like, about doing the thing. It's not about, like, the stuff you get at the end. And I think, like you know, we kind of live in this era of, like, getting there fast and shortcuts and, like, you know, hacks and stuff like this. And that's amazing. And those things are hard to stumble into. But I'm somebody where I'm, like, I appreciate, like, a project and building towards something and feeling satisfied and, like, you know, enjoying the thing at the end, like, the way it's meant to be enjoyed. And I like any skill or craft, like it's one where I'm enjoy the process as much as I enjoy like what happens at the end. So I love that Baker, you know, people have been doing that with layer cakes, like in some cases their first layer cake and it's amazing. Yeah, the zen of layer caking I think is very real. And 
I'm curious what you think about this, but I do feel like there's been a really huge increase in people that are baking over the past couple years that definitely started at least in part with sheltering in place during the pandemic and having free time to be baking. That's definitely when I was making the most bread and cakes that I ever have had. And then now through the work that I do with Cakesy and I have this like great window into dessert culture. And I feel like I always talk to people, they say like you're doing a magazine about cake and they think it's one thing and then I have to tell them that there are all these interesting people doing like fascinating things and that they're independent bakers that are having traction on Instagram and there are bake sales that raise thousands of dollars for Planned Parenthood. And there's just like so many exciting things happening with cake. I guess to quote your book title, it's more than cake. <laughs> uh, and I'm curious like what you guys are seeing in the pastry world and what is like exciting to you. Eliza, I remember telling you this as you were telling, this is probably going back maybe a, a year or more. Um, Eliza was telling me about Cake Scene and she was launching this cake magazine. Um, and I was saying how kind of in agreement, like I feel like there is a cake renaissance happening and Natasha is part of that for sure. But I think the most exciting thing that I see really is kind of innovations in cake making, I think in the kind of pastry realm and Instagram is a great way to find inspiration from other creators and other um chefs and recipe developers. So I think about people like, um, I was introduced, not in person, but just to her work, um, Hannah Ziskin at Quarter Sheets in LA is making like incredible sheet cakes. I'm very into sheet cakes these days. This is like the best, no offense to anyone in this room, this is the best cake I've ever had, is Hannah oh, Ziskin's wow, really? princess uh, cake. Taking offense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to change my thoughts, I will eat your cake any day, but um, it is an exceptional cake, really. I haven't tasted any of them, just full disclosure. This is only from what I've seen in like the tiny square of my cell phone. Um, but they just look incredible and the kinds of, the sort of, um, what I feel like are innovations in cake decorating and what you can do with frosting and using it as truly as a tool, I think, like a, a, a medium. And what I think pastry chefs are creating now really feels like art. And I love that idea that, and I've always kind of felt like this, and even as a recipe developer creating recipes for a popular audience where I'm keeping myself focused on limitations like ingredient sourcing and equipment and time, I've felt like for me personally, and Natasha, I'm sure you would agree with this, I do sort of feel like baking is an art practice. And I think that with cakes that we're seeing now from pastry chefs like Hannah Ziskin and many others, it takes it to that, it really elevates it to that kind of art form level, which I just love seeing and find it like super, super inspiring. So yeah, that's, she's a great follow if you guys <laughs> check her out. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to follow, I agree with what you're saying and just to follow, I agree with what you're saying about me. Um, so I'm just kidding. Um, but just to like, you know, follow up with what you were kind of observing, which is also this idea of like maybe perhaps like this defiance of what we think of, of this tradition and like who is making the desserts and like where you get to eat them and who gets to share them. And obviously like social media is such a big part of like this democratization of like this, you know, uh, like canon of pastry and like what makes a great plated dessert and, and who's doing it. And that's a world that's like largely male. It's mostly white. And it's at restaurants that most people I know can't afford to go eat at. And like, those are all great things. But I think like as much as we can sort of break beyond those conventions and sort of invert ideas and like do different things and, you know, make cakes that don't look perfect and like cakes that don't have sharp edges and that aren't draped in fondant, but like are covered with like beautiful, inviting, organic things. Like this is so important, I think, 
like I, I you know I didn't go to culinary school um, so there are like certain things I don't know how to do but I think also like a sugar rose like doesn't serve my palate either like that's not something I want to eat it doesn't feel delicious to me so I prefer to dress things with you know things I'm finding at the market or the garden and I think like thinking about dessert pastry like that world beyond what we have come to expect up until this point like feels super you know energizing and refreshing to me yeah I think it's really exciting and as like the food media person every couple weeks I feel like I see an article that's like the new trend in cakes is messy cakes or the new trend in cakes is sexy cakes or chaotic cakes like there are all these different trends and like to me these are all real articles also I think but To me, the answer is always like, yes, and. Like, yes, there are people that are doing this style, and at the same time, there are people that are making the, like, grocery store sheet cakes that you can literally print out a picture of yourself on and, like, fondant cakes that look like fire trucks and, like, 80s-style wedding cakes. Like, there are enough people doing all of these things, and maybe the attention goes to one or the other, but I think even as your own books show, there are so many different ways that you can approach doing dessert or cake in the first place. That's my sermon. Sorry. (laughs) So I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about like what's going on in your kitchens right now. Like what are you developing and working on? <laughs> big, big breath. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another, well, this is another thing in common, but gardening. Natasha and I both gotten oh, into yeah. gardening in the last couple of years, I would say. I mean, I don't feel like you garden now. You're kind of like beyond, you have like yeah. arms oh, on your little tractor. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> when it comes to gardening at all. Um, but it is the kind of pursuit that you can just try stuff. And if it doesn't work, you just try again the next year. Okay. So we made a couple mistakes in our garden plan, one of which was selling all of our pole beans at the same time. So we have, in the last week, I think we've had like 25 pounds of pole beans that we've harvested. So right now we're just trying to find creative ways to consume and process like a ton of produce coming out of our garden, which is an amazing problem to have. Um, So we're just like eating so many tomatoes, so many zucchini, um, tons of, I love Romano beans. We have like a bunch of like Romano style beans in our garden. So a lot of like Saladni Swaz, a ton of BLTs, mostly cooking, um, a ton of just tomato toast. I love like a tomato melt with like white American cheese on top of the tomato. It's so good. Um, so yeah, it's mostly a focus on summer produce right now, which is just makes this my absolute favorite time of the year. We're also getting into that we will be soon in that amazing overlap between summer and fall produce, which is just incredible with the eggplant and grapes and apples and you're getting into fall, but you still have like incredible tomatoes. So I'm just trying to be very in the moment seasonally and enjoy all this stuff because there's so many summers that went by when I was working on book recipes and recipe developing where I felt like, oh, I didn't eat enough tomatoes or I didn't you know, appreciate the zucchini or make enough eggplant parm or that kind of thing. So things are a little bit calmer for me now. So I'm just trying to really appreciate the garden and like, you know, get up, get my hands in dirt every day and that kind of thing. So it's, it's been really fun. And if anyone has any pole bean recipes that they love, please let me know. Yeah, like how to bake with pole beans. <laughs> we've just, we've pickled them, braised them, blanched them. I'm out of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> you should have brought them here. We could have distributed them in this crowd real fast. 
<laughs> Natasha, what are you cooking are, and well, making? Are you growing any melons or anything like that? Mm. No melons. Maybe next year. We want to try next okay. year. Because like this is, in New York State, like this is the moment, and this is the time. And melon season is like so ephemeral and like incredible. And when it's happening, it's really happening. But I'm I'm at the Union Square Green Market tomorrow morning. I'm like doing a melon demo at Norwich Meadows Farm. <laughs> Um, which is kind of like in the center of the market. And they are known for their like incredible variety of melons. Um, and I have this um, panna cotta recipe in my book. Um, and the way that it's dressed in the book is you grate fresh melon on top and then kind of spoon the pulp and the juices just like on top of the panna cotta. And I add like vinegar after. Um, and it's it's so good it's so simple like it's so juicy you know you get these strands of like the grated melon and when I was developing the recipe I wanted to be sure that like if you weren't at the Union Square Farmer's Market and got like the perfect French melon like cantaloupe from Norwich that you could make this recipe and it would still be good so I tested the recipe with like conventional honeydew and like weird underripe cantaloupe from like my sea town just because I was like this might like some people might make that this might be what's available to them so I kind of like you know pump it up with vinegar and with like you know extra things to make it taste like really vibrant and bright but I'm so excited to go to the market tomorrow and just like pick the warm melon that's like never been in a refrigerator it's never been on a truck and just like you know get in there so can't wait. Yeah, that sounds great. I might have to show up. What time are you going to be? Oh, yeah, I'll be there at 11 tomorrow if anybody wants panna cotta at 11 a.m. I'll be handing it it out. I feel like as far as breakfast dessert goes, that feels like a pretty solid breakfast dessert. That doesn't seem weird at all. Yeah, okay, cool. (laughs) But again, like layer cake for breakfast also worthwhile there's no losing in that situation I mean I did a like I did a book signing with Grow NYC at the farmer's market back in June and wow people love free samples it was like crazy (laughs) it was so crazy people were just like what's this shoot and then just like walk away and like I'm like I have a book um but yeah so I feel like free samples makes it pretty easy so (laughs) yeah and Natasha I want to hear a little bit about your book tour that you've been on over the summer how has that been Goodness, it was wild. It was so fun. It feels like it was a lifetime ago. I went to 14 cities. Um, I did a lot, and that was on. That's on me. I just wanted to, um, but it was like the core idea around the book tour was that I wanted to produce all these bake sales in different cities. So we had like a huge bake sale um, at the White Hotel in New York. That was like my first book event. And then we did another huge one with Now Serving in LA, um, uh, which was like the following month. And then in between all that, I did a bake sale in um, DC for a DC abortion fund, um, Seattle, Ithaca, uh, Austin, and then I did like other assorted book events on top of that. So it was like insanely ambitious because I was coordinating, I was like producing giant events with like 38 chefs. Um, and in a way, like they weren't even really like about the book, but I think that's like how I wanted to do it. Like that was how I wanted to meet people and, and get out there. So, um, yeah, the book tour ended in June and then I was like, I just like laid in bed and my skin hurt and I was like, I can't, I don't want to talk to or see anybody for like a week. Yeah, we're happy you're, you made it back out to this after talking to so many people. But I do think at the, at the big sale in New York, a lot of people did make recipes from the book or recipes that were kind of inspired by the book. Oh yeah, that was so cool. I had, and some people, there were like some doubles, like um, Brianna from Tandem Bakery in Portland, Maine and Dan Pelosi of Grossi Pelosi both made the granola shortbread, but they like 
each put their own little twist on it. Like Brianna put sumac in hers and he like used his own savory granola. And it was just like a dream to see your peers and like friends kind of dive into your own book and put their own twist on stuff and and see like the tweaks that they make to things. Like it was amazing. It was incredible. Claire, did you do a book tour for What's for Dessert? I did. I did a book tour for What's for Dessert, and I was really excited about it because Dessert Person was fall 2020, so nothing was in person. So these were really my first, um, like, real in-person events, and it was so much fun. I did not go to 14 cities at all on my <laughs> book tour. Um, but I did, so I did, like, events in, in D.C. and St. Louis in my hometown, which was really fun. My friend Joe Firestone, who's here in the back, did it with me in our high school gymnasium. Which what was, was your mascot? Wild. Do you know? Our mascot was was a greyhound dog. Go, go greyhounds! <laughs> <laughs> um, that was really really fun, and like a couple other uh, locations. So yeah, it was great, and I loved doing just being able to be in a room and have the energy of of a crowd. And I had like a bunch of family come to all the different events, so it was it was just so much fun. And I think I appreciated it more because I didn't have a chance to do it the first time around. Um, and there's like something I actually really like about the virtual events, I think there's a lot to be said for that too, but I was just so ready to be with people for the second book. Yeah, I feel like most people are down on virtual events. Can you say one thing in, in favor of them? Now I'm curious. <laughs> well, from my perspective, I can close my computer and lay on my couch at Huge. the end. <laughs> so not, it's, really, it's really the benefit to me, not so much as like an attendee for everyone else. Um, That's important too, though. Well, it, I mean, you have a different kind of reach that you can do because if you have a virtual event, anyone can tune in. So that was great for dessert person, but for what's for dessert, I was just so excited to like... I could like get on an Amtrak and go to Boston, and I did an event in Boston where my you know my parents live, so it was just really fun, and I could I connected with people I haven't seen in a super long time, so I had I had a lot of fun. But this was a fall book, so it was actually kind of nice because it came out in November, and then you the, the holidays were kind of a bookend, so it was like it was kind of a nice period of time where it was like kind of go 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 until the holidays, and then I got to just kind of relax and enjoy the winter a little bit. Definitely. Uh, this might be a triggering question, but on behalf of everyone in the room, I feel like I need to ask you what you're working on now and what's up next that we can be excited about. You want to say? <laughs> um, well, are you doing any cookbook festivals or anything like that this fall? Because this is kind of like the season, or we're coming into a season of it. Not that I have planned. I don't think so. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm doing like tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not so sure. Are you? I'm doing a. Um, I'm doing an event at Philly. Um, Ellen Yang from High Street Hospitality is doing something called Cookbooks and Conversations. So I'm doing a little pop-up at Machine Shop Bakery in Philly, um, which is really, really special and super yummy. And then I'm going to a book festival in Austin in November. Um, and yeah, I'm still like promoting the shit out of this book. It's like, I think that my book came out in the spring, you know, and I at first I was feeling like, kind of nervous about that because baking books typically come out in the fall because people are thinking about baking in the fall, in the holidays and gifting, et cetera. Um, but I think ultimately, like, I appreciate that for this book because there's so much, there's like a chapter about fruit. There's a chapter about vegetables. So I think it speaks to the like fact that I'm hoping that people are engaging with the text year round, but August is kind of like a dead month, I think for cookbook sales. Like, I think that's tricky and I'm trying to figure out how to bridge all of the hustling I did this spring with the fact that I want like people who haven't thought about the book yet to kind of think about it again this fall. So I'm like doing a new renewed 
kind of push around it. And, you know, like I said, like with the book tour, like having been about bake sales, like now I think I want to kind of buckle down and be like, let's get into the text. Let's get into the pages. What makes these recipes work? Why are they special? Like, you know, what, like what's in here, you know? And that wasn't actually something I did that much of on the book tour because I think people were like wanting to talk about the mechanics of bake sales and social activism and like all of this like kind of fundraising stuff that you can do with baking. So, which is part of the book too, but now I'm like, but chocolate chip cookies, you know? So I think like there's so much more I have to say about what is inside of this book. So I'm thinking like this fall, I'm just trying to like, you know, do events that support this vision I have for like how to get it through to the end of the year. Definitely. Claire, are you doing anything this fall that's exciting? No, which I'm really excited about. I'm excited, For you, that about, is exciting. about doing stuff that's like not super exciting. Um, I've really been taking it easy since this book came out, and I mean, I'm still working on my YouTube channel, which is like weekly videos, um, but really kind of getting out of the mold of the first two books and doing more kind of original recipes, even with some more savory stuff, because I feel like I do have to remind people sometimes that I started. As a, as a savory recipe developer, I always did both. Um, and baking was just a, a category that I preferred and liked so much, but that I, I'm a cook and I love to cook. Um, so I've been doing tons of cooking at home. Like I'm spending most of my time in the Hudson Valley. So it's really like nonstop cooking, three meals a day. Like we do have a dishwasher and it runs like four times a day because <laughs> we're just cooking all the time. So that's been really fun and kind of getting into this, I would say it's like homesteading light kind of lifestyle of like chickens and gardening and that kind of thing. So, um, and it's summer, so that's been a huge focus. So thinking about that and then, yeah, just continuing to produce YouTube stuff. We did um, a series of episodes from Cape Cod recently. So we're trying to like maybe take it on the road a little bit because as much as I love the YouTube series for how much it's teaching focused and it's about showing a recipe from start to finish, it's like we've been doing that for almost three years and it's getting a little boring, at least on my end. So just trying to think a little bit more broadly about the kinds of activities we can do, and especially in the Hudson Valley, there's so many farms and farmers, and so trying to take like field trips and be out in the field a little bit, sort of figuratively and literally. Um, and then I also have Patreon, which is also a really fun kind of side project that I work on. That's also original recipes and videos and stuff that's a little bit closer to home, like a little bit more of a window into the kinds of projects that we're working on just personally at home. So there will be another book, but that's like very far away. So I'm already thinking about that and trying to shape it, but I'm not, I'm not ready to really like dive into that yet. So I like the thinking about it. The thinking yeah. about it is so important. The conceptualizing, the organizing. I think that this is like a really important time in any book project is before you actually put pen to paper and start developing recipes is just like letting it kind of on its own take form in, in your mind. So I'm just trying to like let my brain relax a little bit, which it hasn't really had a chance to do in the past four years. Um, so I'm just really enjoying kind of like a little bit more of a relaxed time. This is, is like cast classic Claire is that you said you weren't doing anything and then you said like five things that you're doing. Right, <laughs> right. right, exactly. That, that's normal. But like, I like yeah. all of that. And we're going to jump into audience questions in a second. But first, I'm going to do a really quick lightning round with you two. So I'm going to say a prompt and then just don't overthink it. Tell me the first thing that comes into your head. Should we take a breath? Sure. Yeah. Do you want me to say first? Yeah. Okay. okay. 
like on the count of three. Last time. Because what if we said the same thing? Do you want to do a simultaneous thing? No, that sounds chaotic. No, I think Claire, you'll go, then Natasha, and then we'll let everyone else ask questions. Okay, ready? Okay, favorite store-bought dessert? Oreos. Um, ice cream. What brand? Uh, Haagen-Dazs. I would say Haagen-Dazs. Every pastry chef says Haagen-Dazs. That's like the <laughs> answer. Okay, sorry. Favorite cookbook of all time? Uh, Chez Panisse desserts. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to say that. Um, Richard Only, Simple French Food. Oh, oh. or but, um, Classic Dessert. Oh, no. Um, I was going to say... Um, Ten Simple sacks. Vineyard Lunches. Oh, no. Or, um, oh. <laughs> we all were going to say that one. <laughs> or, or Claudia Fleming. Um, oh. Last course. Last, last course. Thank you. Okay. Best baking tool? Mini offset spatula. Mini offset spatula. <laughs> Scale. Scale. Okay. Most overrated baking tool? Uh, uh, I don't know. I have a lot of Turntables. Oh, okay. That's a good one. Turntables. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, something you'll never make from scratch. Oh, bagels. Oh. Up until recently, I would have said ice cream, but now I have a really fancy ice cream maker. So now I'm making ice cream. <laughs> okay. Oh, lady fingers. Lady fingers. Yeah. Um, last home baking project that you fucked up. Oh, I tried to totally wing, like, just not... No measuring, no reference or anything. Make, like, a um, ricotta cake with stone fruit, and it just wasn't good at all. It was terrible. We fed it to our chickens. <laughs> um, donuts. Okay, best advice you were given about baking? Uh, weigh your ingredients. Make every mistake once. Favorite New York City restaurant right now? Four Horsemen. Um, I'm eating out so seldom, but the last place I went, I was like, I have to go this summer, and it was Cocoron, because I just only want to eat cold soba in summer. Mm. Okay, favorite New York City bakery right now? Mine is Radio Bakery, which just opened in Greenpoint, so it's like very near me, and I go there. I haven't time. been to Radio, but I've been following it. It's a, I, they're like you friends of a it. friend, but I, yeah, I'm dying to go. It's so good. It's great. I just had and their, their coffee like, is good too. And I feel like most bakeries have good pastries, but they don't have good coffee. And coffee shops have good coffee, but garbage pastries. So it's like perfect. Yeah, they they do both. Get their peaches and cream croissant. If I love it. that croissant. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Uh, what's a fictional dessert scene that you just can't get out of your head? One I think about all the time is Bruce. What's his name in Matilda with the chocolate cake? Bog Trotter. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just uh, rewatched Silence of the Lambs, and there's a scene where they're like FBI is all hanging out, and there's a giant cake that says FBI on, has like the seal of the FBI on it, and it happens so so fast, but like this person cuts the biggest slice of cake I've ever seen. It's like, and they're like, and it's like got the like FBI logo on it, and it's so cool. Wait, another one I think of is in It's Complicated, where Meryl Streep and um, uh, I'm like really blanking right now. Steve Martin, thank you to myself for remembering that. Um, are making croissants at, in like late night in the bakery, and I'm like, you can't make croissants in like two hours. It's like you have to like let it prove. Like there was not a pastry chef consulted for this scene. There's no way that's happening, but it's very charming, and I love both of them. Those are all great answers, and I'm gonna open the floor up to questions now. If people want to raise their hands. Hi, um, I'd love to hear you two talk a little about choosing the visual aesthetics for your cookbooks, um, especially like with Claire's, 
from your first book to your second book, like a huge shift? Was it fun? Was it stressful? Like how much help did you have in picking and selecting your dishware and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, this is, I think, such an interesting topic um, because it, there's such a wide range in sort of how people approach the idea of producing the photography for a book. Um, so I knew going into it that I wanted the book to have a little bit of a retro feel because the recipes lean that way. The book really kind of explores kind of like um, sort of older, more mid-century style recipes. And because of the focus on simplicity and accessible ingredients in the book, I knew that visually they needed a little help. Like there's a lot of kind of brown things topped with whipped cream in the book. So it was like we needed color, we needed shape, we needed... Um, sort of like tech, you know, texture. So it's a very like stylized, kind of prop heavy book. And this is what happened to me for both Dessert Person and What's for Dessert is I have a really hard time like letting go of things. So I was still working on the manuscript when I was shooting the book, which is not really ideal. You don't really want to be in that position. So I needed tons of production help. There was, I had very sort of limited time and bandwidth to be working on things like picking my own props or, or styling the book myself. So I had, for both books, food stylist and prop stylist and a photographer, so like a full team, a full creative team um, that I could not have done it without. And Nicole Louie was the um, prop stylist for What's for Dessert and just did an amazing job. So I felt like the desserts needed, they needed to be in a scene a little bit. Um, and that was much less so the case for dessert person, I think the visuals of those recipes speak a little bit more for themselves. So it was a little bit more pared back. But I think there's still like a maximalism to it. I like maximalism. I am like a little bit, I don't know, I just find minimalism a little boring. So I wanted them to be fun and colorful. And um, sometimes I look at them and I'm like, maybe we went a little far <laughs> with, the, <laughs> with the retro look. But I'd rather it be that than boring. So I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. Natasha, do you want to oh. talk about yours too? Uh, sorry, I was like, st I'm like staring at the back of Claire's book right now, and there's like four really beautiful images on the back. Was that like something that you got to decide in tandem with your publisher, or was that the book designer's decision to have the photos on the back? I love it. That was just the designer sent me like, hey, here's my mock-up of the covers. And actually for dessert person, there was quite a long debate involving a lot of people about the cover image. But for what's for dessert, it was pretty much, we pretty much took the photo and I was like, that would be a great cover, cover image. So that part was really, there was surprising consensus around that. And then the back was like, but let's, we had a lot of photos. It was like, let's put more photos on the, on the back cover. So um, I got to choose those, which was nice. It's always a negotiation and a discussion with, with the publisher and editor and everything. So everyone's happy. But um, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm lucky, I feel like, because in both cases, I really think that I wrote the book that I wanted to write which I don't think a lot of authors can necessarily say that, especially their first time around. Like, to get this perfect folded of the into the mousse, or, like, how, did you get that, like, did you have multiple bowls of mousse prep for that? That was pretty much just, that pretty much just happened. We were shooting, that comes from process, so the final chapter in the book is all, like, sort of technique explainers and step-by-step, step. and that came from just the, explaining what folding is and so we used a like a chocolate batter and meringue because you can literally see the things the two things combining there's maximum contrast so we just kind of got lucky with that shot it was and of course there was 175 photos from like folding one bowl of I think that it was for um 
I think that image is actually from the chocolate souffle recipe. But anyway, it was just... I mean, I feel like it's so profound that the cover of your book is like something in process and not like a finished thing. And I think that speaks to like the publisher's trust in you for communicating your ideas through that image because I think a lot of publishers want like the beauty, the hero, the right. done, polished, cool looking thing. Yeah, I wanted it to be processed too because, well, I, I what you said about like, it's not just the destination, it's the journey, which obviously is like is a cliche, but it is a cliche because it's true. Um, that resonated with me and I wanted it to be processed because I wanted it to sort of communicate that idea of like, this is a book about, um, as much about the sort of technique and the sort of getting from A to B as it was about the finished thing. So I love that it's a process shot and that, and not just sort of a beauty of a finished dessert, which you see all the time and which dessert person was. Um, and the publisher went for it, which is great. And also I just love the, the texture of that image. It kind of like jumps out on the page. So I felt like if you saw that image on like a bookshelf sh in a bookstore, like over there, like, oh, what's that book? And yeah. you want to go up to it and, and flip through it. So um, I'm happy that they, everyone liked that image. Um, as an aside, it's complicated. They rolled those croissants like normal croissants, but then they turned out chocolate croissants. Like, it was fucking weird. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing yeah. detail. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was watching it, and I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> Anyways, um, so I'm curious from both of you. You're both wonderfully successful women and have done amazing things. So for you, you it, it seems like both of you are kind of on your second life, your second career. And I'm curious, like, did it feel like a natural progression to get there? Or did it feel like you were making a decisive effort? And if so, what informed the decision to pivot in whatever career you were in at the time? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like this is like a very emotional topic for me still. Um, I mean, I don't really feel like I've decided to do anything intentionally. It's like something happens circumstantially and then I either fall in love with that thing or it just becomes something I do over and over again. It becomes part of my life. But I mean, even just entering restaurants and learning how to cook that way was something I didn't think I was going to do. I mean, Claire mentioned we both had sort of tiptoed around this idea of, you know, pursuing careers in academia, but uh, the institutions did roundly reject me everywhere, so that did not happen. Um, weird that nobody wanted to take a 24-year-old with an English degree in their ethnomusicology PhD programs, uh, but that was my, like, yeah, the idiocy of being 24, thinking you might have a chance, but as far as cookbook writing goes, like, I don't think I ever thought that I would write a cookbook someday, because I think that, like, maybe like part of it is also being a woman and like not wanting to like take up too much space. But, you know, I know I love books. I have like so many books and I have so many cookbooks. And I think I felt a lot of fear around like what it meant to have a book out in the world. Like I d deserve to have a book out in the world. Like who did I think I was that I have a chocolate chip cookie recipe? Like, and I think like there was a lot of, for me it was like, there was never a moment where I was like, I'm ready, I'm going to do this, like, let's go, I'm confident. It was more just like the people around me being like, let's just just start. And just once you do it, then it will make sense. And so, you know, I sold this book summer of 2020 and I like kind of couldn't believe it. Like I was like, I couldn't believe that there were like multiple publishers that wanted to, you know, buy this book. And it still feels like this weird aberration or something, but you know, so I don't know if there was like a natural point where I was like, I want to become a cookbook author. But I think coming from restaurants 
and having like a much lower quality of life, I think, and now being able to still engage and interact with with ingredients and recipes and technique and people and community, but like with a lot more autonomy and more on my own terms has felt really profound. So I feel very lucky that I was able to make that transition and it was not intentional. It just kind of happened. Yeah. I think for me, starting in food media and then moving to cookbooks, that part felt very natural. Um, although similar to what Natasha was saying, there is a sort of anxiety that I felt when starting a cookbook, which is like, do I have enough to say to write a book? Is there, you know, and what am, what am I going to say that's different from what has been said literally one million times, you know, in, in all the books that have come before? And I don't have that attitude anymore. I think that it's about a point of view and about a particular approach, not can you... And it's not, this, it's not the same as saying, like, does the world need another chocolate chip cook re cookie recipe? Because actually the answer is yes, because there is, like, such a high demand for, for recipes like that. So the part that does not feel... I don't want to say it doesn't feel natural, but the part that is still surprising to me is the, the video component of what I do and the YouTube because... It sounds, it even sounds to me as an unlikely aspect of what I do now because I'm such an introvert. Like I was saying how for YouTube, we're trying to kind of get out and be in the world a little bit and get out of the kitchen, but it's like really all I want to do is be in the kitchen and usually be by myself in the kitchen or just with the cat. So it still sounds funny to me that that's what I do. I was at um, like uh, an event recently where I saw someone I haven't seen in many, many years. And they're like, what are you doing now? And I said it jokingly, but I was like, I'm a YouTuber. And they were like, what? And I was like, I know, it sounds so <laughs> unlikely, but it is it is the truth. So, But I do it because it's, it's teaching-centered, and that's what I'm really passionate about is I feel like it's a, a great kind of calling that I have to sort of share the knowledge that I've gained and from, from all of my experience. So that's why I do it. Um, it's not the kind of loving the feeling of being seen as much, but it is, it is a fantastic tool for sort of sharing and, um, like getting, getting out the kind of work that I do. So I'm really grateful for it and I like it a lot. It's just still weird to me that that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, maybe one more quick one. Um, I don't know. I don't know where to look. Do you, do you want to pick? Who? <laughs> Hi. Um, so I think this is a question that any three of you can answer to the extent you feel comfortable answering. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on baking with cannabis and the cannabis industry in general when it comes to like making edibles. <laughs> I'm like, love cannabis. Um, <laughs> uh, I personally. OK, wait, let me well, think. I called you out because of the rose collab yeah, but I didn't make that but yeah I hear you so I mean I actually haven't done a lot of baking with cannabis I've done it once there's a um like a cannabis supper club in Toronto called dirt and they were doing these like series of pop-up dinners do you know what I'm talking I about I was there yeah oh my god you were yeah <laughs> like 2017 right 2018. yes oh my gosh well I, I got in so much trouble for that actually because <laughs> Did you write about it in BA? No, I did not write about it. Somebody did like a little thing, and anyway, it was a became a whole thing. But um, because back then, you know, you couldn't legally purchase or smoke or consume in New York State. So, but because they were coming from Ontario, from Ontario, it was different. But they had worked with a guy named. Um, it was like literally something like Maui Mike, but I don't remember. It was, that was, his it name. was Maui Mike. Oh, it was yeah. okay. <laughs> 
And he had made like all of these beautiful like dosed olive oils, chocolate ganache, coconut oil, like all these fats for for baking with. And he was actually like extremely structured and disciplined with like instructions with how to use it um, because we were doing a coarse meal that was like microdose throughout the evening. Um, so I actually learned a lot about that, but I haven't done it since then. But I more like support makers in the cannabis space who treat making edibles like making great food. You know, they have relationships with farms. Um, they're working with ingredients that are in season. Um, they're treating flour like a great heirloom tomato. They're thinking about like flour in that same way that we think about food, which, you know, you're seeing become more like less stigmatized and more normal um, because it exists in like a wellness space or whatever. And so we're kind of thinking about cannabis in different ways now, um, which I think is really positive, I think, for the industry. And now, of course, there are like fancy dispensaries and stuff in New York. Like I haven't been to Gotham yet, but people love it. Um, but yeah, I think I don't, I wish I knew more about it. There's a, actually an incredible pastry chef who, um, is based in Illinois called Mindy Siegel. Oh yeah. That's, I was going to mention that too. Yeah. And she, um, worked in great restaurants in Chicago and now makes these, you know, high end edibles that are like satsuma flavored and, you know, like it's kind of bougie, but like, you know, small batches and, and nice. But I just think like anything that we can do to get away from like, Blue res or like whatever, you know, Basically, like fake yeah. stuff. Like, but I did you that. do a collab with Rose Los Angeles or am I missing? Oh yeah, we did two. Yeah. and actually the last. Can one you that just I did, tell people what that is quickly if they don't know? Oh yeah, so Rose Delights. I love that we're ending the talk on this note. Um, but <laughs> Rose Delights is like a small kind of edibles uh, company out of California. They cook in San Francisco, um, but they also kind of work out of um, Los Angeles. And they do a lot of collabs with chefs, like... Um, Enrique Olvera did one. Yeah. A michelada gummy. Yeah. Yeah. And and so they're, they're, they're making, like, these really interesting kind of Turkish delight-styled things with lots of flavor and small batches. So we did one inspired by one of the layer cakes in my book, which was so cool. And they did, like, a... I have a layer cake in my book that's black sesame sponge with a pineapple and lime marmalade. And so they made a pineapple gummy with lime zest steeped into it, rolled in um, buzzed up black sesame seeds, sifted with tapioca starch. And like, they're so delicious. And I was just like astonished that they had like taken this idea of a layer cake in my book and sort of like translated it to one of their delights. So it was really cool. Do they have anything? it at Dimes. I've seen it at Dimes. Yeah. Um, the CBD if, if ones? Buy it. They have the CBD ones at, at the Dimes Deli, but yeah. yeah. Now they ship the THC nationwide. Do you have anything to add on cannabis, Claire? <laughs> Not really. I don't, I've never really worked with it, but I was just going to talk about Mindy Siegel's like launched a business. I do think there's like really interesting overlap between pastry and kind of like cooking with cannabis um, and like and I don't know, just interesting sort of like re retail opportunities, I think, for pastry chefs there. But I don't really have any, I don't have anything to add besides what Natasha <laughs> said. Yeah, I guess my personal thoughts are that if something's really delicious, maybe it's nice to have a version without cannabis so that you can eat as much of it as you like without being worried about what comes after. But to each their own. Um, and I guess we can end on that note because that's a fun one. <laughs> This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening. <laughs>